Hello, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast. Hello, David. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It is Monday, March 22nd, and we're going to go back to our foreign affairs, our trusty foreign affairs, and discuss an article today. Today's article was written by Gideon Rose, longtime editor-in-chief of Foreign Affairs magazine. And this is his last issue as editor-in-chief. And he wrote a preamble in the the print magazine saying, you know, he's loved his time here and it's an open forum for discussions. But uh, it's time to move on. And this is his sort of swan song in terms of writing a full-bore article. So are you excited to take a look at it today? Yes, I'm ready to go. Okay, well, should we just jump into it and start reading it? Well, first of all, what did you think of it? Um, It's heavy on theory. So, I mean, I studied uh, political science when I was in college, so I have a little background in this theory. You did not. That's correct, right? Correct. So I understood from my political theory classes, which, of course, it's been 20 years, but, um, you know, the political spectrum, it exists largely not as a, a line or a line segment, but as an omega-shaped. And on the far left, which was your right, but on my left, on the far left, you have communal anarchism. And on the far right, you have individual anarchism. So the far left and far right are closer to each other than they are to the middle. And then moving in from the left and the right, you have fascism and communism. Then moving further in, you have libertarianism and socialism. And then moving further in, you have conservatism and liberalism. So liberalism is closer to conservatism than it is to fascism. And uh, if that makes sense, because they're right next to each other on the spectrum. And communal anarchy is closer to individual anarchy than it is to liberalism, which is, you know, the middle left. So the fringes are... That makes sense. That makes sense, because the principles are are basically the same, but they have a little bit different 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 uh, perspective on on what they believe and how they how they implement it and the actually the pragmat the pragmatism of uh, of implementing their, their yes. philosophy and these uh, foreign policy concepts of liberalism versus realism sort of apply a similar analytical framework so the organizing factor of the left in the political theory spectrum is cooperation and the organizing theory of the right is individualism so realism says everyone's in it for themselves it is a total zero-sum game states are rational actors that will work to maximize their own advantage whereas a liberalism model and that's sort of he he's he'll put it out here in this article that's thomas hobbes you know the state of man is anarchy or whatever and they're going to fight tooth and nail to get as many resources as possible. And then John Locke, which is the more liberalistic uh, form of foreign policy, says cooperation is not anathema to how humans live their lives. You know, so working together with other nations to achieve gains is possible, whereas Hobbes doesn't see it so much so. Or if they do work together, it's for their own benefit, and that's the only reason they do anything. That's, but the article starts there and then it continues on, on foreign policy. Uh, I talk goes on talking about 
the uh, uh, politics of the past, uh, of recent past, and the present. Mm -hmm. And then it then he proposes uh, how to move forward, uh, different things uh, you should do. And he doesn't say one from my what I got from it is uh, he doesn't say here's what you should do, but he said here's the approach you should take. Uh, more of a, a pluralism uh, to looking at uh, uh, pra pra pragmatism. Mm -hmm. I guess a foreign policy for, for pragmatist, uh, rather than looking at um, um, you, you can have uh, principles, but also uh, you know talking about the means and the ends. Uh, it has to be a balance between the two. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so That's and he also talks about history, which is I think is very interesting. And so, yeah, we can get into this, but speaking of pragmatism, I got a question I want to ask you, and this is completely off topic. Okay. <laughs> they were all sold out of my yogurt at the grocery store. So I yeah. bought a different type of yogurt, and I ate it this morning, and I hate it. And I buy the 32-ounce tubs. So there's probably 28 ounces of yogurt. I hate wasting food, but I hate this yogurt. Should I throw it away? Or should I eat the last 28 ounces? Well, being a pragmatist, uh, it, well, with a pragmatist view, I would say uh, do neither. Uh, use it in your cooking. That's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Figure some way to use that in some kind of a kind of a sauce or some kind of a, uh, and if you can, just throw it away. Yeah. It's it's gross. I don't know. And this is completely off topic, but we'll get into the article in one second. I just want to say it's got <laughs> stevia extract. And I'm not a big fan of sugar, but I'll eat sugar. Stevia extract is like the natural artificial sweetener, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the only but like I'll eat sugar. It's fine. I mean, I have blueberries. That's natural sugar, fructose. But stevia extract, sucralose, asperitame. They're all disgusting to me. Any artificial sweetener, like when it's in a product that I eat, it makes it inedible to me. And that's just that's just who I am. That's just how I feel. That's how I'm made. That's why you shouldn't eat it. Mm -hmm. And that's why I hate it. And I didn't yeah, see yeah. it on, on the side of the packaging. You need to listen to your body. Listen to your taste buds. You have to listen to what's right for you, right? Mm-hmm. But enough jibber jabber. Should we get into the article? <laughs> okay, let's let's uh, let's uh, shift the jibber jabber to uh, foreign policy for pragmatists by Gideon Rose. How Biden can learn from history in real time from the March April twenty twenty one foreign affairs. I almost said foreign policy. It's a separate magazine. Foreign affairs magazine. Let's go. Oop, oop, wrong button. Here we go. Bismarck once said that the statement's task was to hear God's footsteps marching through history and try to catch his coattails as he went past. U.S. President George Bush agreed. In his second inaugural address, Bush argued that history has an ebb and flow of justice, but history also has a visible direction set by liberty and the author of liberty. Author of liberty capitalized, I think that he meant God. President Donald Trump had a different take. His national security strategy claimed a central con continuity 
continuity in history is the contest for power. The present time period is no different. The Bush team saw history moving forward along a sunlit path. The Trump team saw it as a gloomy, eternal return. Those beliefs led them to care about different issues, expect different things of the world, and pursue different foreign policies. Theories of history, fundamental beliefs about how the world works, are usually assumed rather than argued, and rarely get subjected to serious scrutiny. Yet, these general ideas set the parameters for all the specific policy choices an administration makes. Know an administration's theory of history, and much of the rest is easy to fill in. There are a lot of possible theories of history, but they tend to fall, like Bush's and Trump's, into two main camps optimistic and pessimistic. Thus, the Clinton administration followed its own version of happy directionality, think of it as Bush with less muscular Christianity, and there have been earlier believers in Trump's dark and stormy night as well. Unfortunately, given the stakes of the question, no one really knows whether the optimists or the pessimists have the better case. Political theorists have fought about that for centuries, with neither side winning. A few generations ago, modern social scientists joined in, generating and testing lots of theories in lots of ways, but still, neither camp bested the other. And then, in the last few years, history got interesting again and erased some of the few things the scholars thought they had learned. As individuals, <laughs> presidents have had strong views on these matters. As a group, they have not. American foreign policy is notorious for its internal tensions. It fits and starts, and reversals do not easily fit into any single theoretical framework. Yet this pluralism has proved to be a feature, not a bug. Precisely because it has not embraced any one approach to foreign policy, consistently, Washington has managed to avoid the worst aspects of all. Blessed with geopolitical privilege, it has slowly stumbled forward, moving over the centuries from peripheral obscurity to global hegemony. Its genius has been less strategic insight than the ability to cut losses. By now, it seems fair to say that the debate between the optimists and the pessimists will never be settled conclusively, since each perspective knows something big about international politics. Instead of choosing between them, the new administration should keep both truths in its pocket, taking each out as appropriate. Learning in U.S. foreign policy has come largely across administrations. Learning in U.S. foreign policy has come largely across administrations. That's a weird sentence. President Joe Biden's goal should be to speed up the process, allowing it to happen within an administration. I get it now. I had to read more. Yeah. Um, Call it the Bayesian doctrine. You know a little something about that, being a PhD in statistics. Rather than being wedded to its priors, the administration should constantly update them. The way to do so is to make theorists, not principals, the administration's true team of rivals, forcing them to make real-world predictions and to offer testable, practical advice, and then seeing whose turn out to be better in real time. In this approach, searching the intellectual honesty is more important than ideology. What people think matters less than whether they can change their minds. Constantly calculating implied odds won't always win pots, but it will help the administration fold bad hands early, increasing its winnings over time. I like the poker analogy because <laughs> I play poker and I understand it. <laughs> Yeah, so well, I think po I've I've heard it said that poker should be a required course in in in, uh, in universities where thought, philosophy, sociology, business, 
uh, political science. Uh, poker should be a required course. It should be a required but, course in high school, I think. It, it should be. But I think people. That, that people would be, uh, well, not I mean, not even reading people, to read the numbers. Uh, in some way, when I play poker, a lot of times, it's all the numbers. And when someone makes something that seems like a bluff, it's not like I'm looking at their face. It's not like I'm looking at their hands. I'm not looking for a tell. It's that bet is not consistent with someone that's playing uh, a good strategy. And it's because it's inconsistent, I think they're trying to pretend like they have something they don't. So you, you look at the numbers and say they're bluffing. Based upon, you know, the pot was this size and they make an oversized bet, they want me to fold. They don't want me to call. If they wanted me to call and they had a good hand, they would have actually bet less. That type of thing, you know? Um, but it, it teaches children numbers. This also reminds me a little bit of, I've been watching these YouTube videos of this guy, Xu Xiaodong. Have you heard of this guy? No. He's a retired, over the hill, big, he's a fatter, larger guy, Chinese guy. And um, earlier this decade, China had a traditional martial arts sort of bolstering Chinese traditional culture on their networks. And they said, yeah, if you're a traditional practitioner of Tai Chi or Kung Fu, we want you to come on our television networks and sort of show what you can do. So all these charlatans came on and they said, you know, like, I can stop knife attacks with Tai Chi. I can do this and that with Kung Fu. And none of it was real. And Xu Xiaodong is like, well, I've, you know, I've studied Kung Fu and Tai Chi and I've studied mixed martial arts. I'll challenge any of these Tai Chi masters that can stop a bullet with Tai Chi to a fight. And he started beating him up. And he lost his social credit score. He can't travel on high-speed trains anymore. He can't fly within China because they saw him as attacking the culture. But the thing is, he was saying, I'm not attacking the culture. I'm attacking these charlatans because they're fake. Well, it's sort of like I've seen people try to contextualize it that are in Chinese mixed martial arts. And they say, it's a pragmatic approach. You say... In mixed martial arts, you say, okay, I have this style, whether that's Wing Chun or Kung Fu or Tai Chi. And in China, what they do is say, the style is supreme. So I am the master and I'll have disciples and my disciples will know less about it than I will. And the style reigns supreme, but I'll never test my style against an Olympic wrestler or a world-class judo player or a world-class jujitsu master because I know that my style is supreme. Whereas in mixed martial arts, you say, okay, I'm a good boxer. I'm gonna learn kickboxing, judo, jujitsu. I'm gonna learn these other disciplines to try to have a well-rounded game because that's how mixed martial arts works. That's what he, Gideon Rose is saying in this article. If you're a realist, don't just assume that the world is real politic. Try to incorporate other theories into yours to make the most logical predictions and to prescribe the most reasonable courses of action going forward. That's exactly right. And that's exactly the uh, a theme through this article all the way through mm -hmm. uh, the, prag the pragmatic part of it. And uh, it's not, there's not one answer to everything. Uh, there's multiple answers and the situation changes. And I, when I read this, I kept thinking we're going to read the rest of it, but uh, uh the world always is always changing. 
some things always stay the same and some things will always change. And humans always want to uh, keep everything constant, everything the same, everything in a box. And that's just not the real world. Mm -hmm. Things do change. I was listening to Hidden Brain. Do you know that show? Yeah. That's on my a good way, one. On my way home yesterday, and they were talking about the dopamine rush you get from explanations. So it was it was fascinating. I just heard a little bit of it because, you know, my, my drive home, I was at your house. I drove home to my house, and it's a 10-minute drive. But people crave explanations. So even if the explanation you're giving them is wrong, post facto, something happens, and you say, this is why that happened. They would rather there be an explanation, even if it's wrong, than to hear, oh, it was just coincidence. It was just bad luck. It was just... Uh, we're just blowing around on a breeze, like, you know, people don't want to hear that. They want to hear, oh, because this and that and that, this happened. And I think a lot of the times, like he's saying, the implied odds won't cause you to win every time. But people will say, oh, we sacrificed. We closed our businesses for two weeks and we wore masks. And coronavirus still came. That way, therefore... Closing our businesses and wearing masks was the wrong thing to do because you said that would be the solution. But really, it wasn't a solution. It was trying to manufacture the best circumstances. And I think people have a hard time. Like, if you tell me to do something, that better be the solution. And if it's not the solution, you were wrong. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And he he, he kind of alludes to that many times through here, I think way back the one thing, the first the first phrase that caught my eye is theories of history, fundamental beliefs about how the world works are usually assumed rather than argued. It's true. <laughs> it is true. Well, and, and, and not only assumed, but they are stated as truth uh, without without proof. The the uh, these fundamental beliefs are stated as axioms without proof, without really arguments or mm -hmm. support. And uh, and uh, a lot of them will contradict one another. Well, I mean, this is a little bit off topic, but maybe not. We watched National Geographic's The Congo this weekend. <laughs> yes. And in the second episode of Wild Congo, I believe it was called on National Geographic. And uh -huh. they, they went through three of the great apes and how their societies are structured. And... In Silverback Gorillas, there's an alpha male, and he's got a harem, and the, the women take care of the children, and the alpha male is the protector. In chimpanzees, the men are hierarchically above the women, but there's also a hierarchical structure among the men. And then in bonobos, they all have sex with each other. And it's like, yeah, we're not, a, I mean, we're not bonobos, chimpanzees, or gorillas, but we are apes, great apes. And you look at three different cultures of great apes and they all come at it from a different perspective like they say you know if the the chimps are the spartans the the bonobos are the hippies well we see you know people with different societal structures amongst ourselves and like you said theories of history are assumed not argued when you say oh humans are focused only on the attainment of power. And that's how great power conflicts will happen. It's like, well, some humans are. 
but some humans aren't. You know, I think that the diversity of humans is sort of like the diversity of the differences between the great apes, if that makes sense. Absolutely, and and uh, and like uh, like the the controversy between power and the cooperation, like uh, like a Locke and uh, Hobbes. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you could also argue that cooperation, the stronger the cooperation, uh, the more power you have. Mm -hmm. So, so the point is, uh, they're not necessarily independent of one another. Uh, they want to create two, two, two poles, dipoles, but they're not. Uh, so you can, you can have, uh, everyone just wants power, but one way to get power is to cooperate. Mm -hmm. uh, so the point is, uh, the world is complex. It changes and, uh, people are the most complex and the most changing, and they were not all homogeneous. Mm -hmm. We're very, very different uh, uh, across across the different states, and that's why we have different countries. Yeah. And if you want a world order, uh, well, that has to be fairly loose because it's really going to change. Mm -hmm. And uh, but and the first part of this was setting the stage for those thoughts. And I think that I think you make some very good points. It's like. It is loose and it's not homogeneous. And that's the point that Gideon Rose is making in this article. And like you said, he's setting the stage for these thoughts. So shall we continue? Okay, I'm ready. The rise and fall of international relations theory. The canonical modern statements of the pessimistic and optimistic visions were set out by the English philosophers Thomas Hobbes and John Locke in the 17th century. Hobbes argued that states in the international system were like individuals in a hypothetical state of nature before the invention of government. Living under anarchy with no sovereign above them to provide order and security, they were at perpetual risk, trapped in a permanent war of all against all, doomed to spend eternity jockeying for power. Locke's view was less bleak, and his version of the state of nature was more permissive. He didn't think anarchy necessarily forced states into inevitable conflict. If they wanted, they could avoid war through cooperation, gaining security and protection by association. That's sort of what I was getting at with my political theory education. There's individualism on one side, and there's cooperation or communalism on the other. Continuing. Hobbes' world and Locke's world looked quite different, so it was clearly important for policymakers to determine which one corresponded better to reality. If war was inevitable, and any stretch of international quiet was just the calm before another storm, states would be suckers for ever letting their guard down. But if sustained peaceful cooperation was possible, they would be fools for not trying to achieve it. For 300 years, the argument raged without end. Pessimists tended to follow Hobbes and became known as realists. Optimists were drawn to Locke and became known as liberals. And history piled up data higher and higher. U.S. foreign <laughs> policies fits and starts and reversals do not fit easily into any single theoretical framework. After World War II, scholars of international relations tackled the problem. They imposed order on the discussion and refined its concepts. They showed how one could operationalize realist and liberal theories in many ways. Using different variables and processes to produce different outcomes, they tested the theories with sophisticated methods and hoped that eventually their collective efforts would yield greater understanding. Studies proliferated, researchers got better, and work became more rigorous, but the anticipated 
knowledge failed to materialize, and it was hard to tell what, if any, intellectual ground had really been gained. Because of this conspicuous failure, by the 21st century, the status claims of realism, liberalism, and rationalistic theorizing in general were being called into question within the discipline. Competing theoretical perspectives crept back into serious discussion, and scholars increasingly abandoned big questions altogether. <laughs> Journals published articles on the end of international relations theory, and then the world started to go off the rails. Where do things stand now? Liberals are on the defensive. They argued that globalization would build on itself and increasingly tie the world together, but instead it provoked a massive backlash, and states are weaponizing interdependence. They saw democracy as improving at its core and marching forward on the periphery, but now it's regressing and retreating. They saw Chinese authoritarianism as doomed to fail, but it has succeeded beyond all expectations. They preached cosmopolitanism, but it turns out that everybody's a little bit nationalist and gets more so understressed. They claimed that norms constrain behavior, but the reality is that shameless people can break them without consequence. Boy, ain't that the truth. These setbacks may be temporary, and the world may get back on the upward track. It seemed to be traveling, but maybe not. Realists, meanwhile, have taken the other side of those bets, and they're feeling validated. Relations between the United States and China are playing out like a classic security dilemma. And the Trump administration's most notable foreign policy accomplishment, its Arab-Israeli peace deals, emerged from classic real politic. In practice, liberal hegemony looks a lot like hegemony. <laughs> um, just before we move on, <laughs> we'll just define hegemony real quick. Is that okay? Yeah, it, I it, look it up. It's a word that a lot of people don't know. Leadership or dominance, especially by one social... One country or social group over others. So the concept of liberal hegemony was, you know, you encourage cooperation and then liberal ideas will sort of proliferate and that'll become the ruling idea. But what you see is the ideas don't rule, the power does. So liberal hegemony looks an awful lot like hegemony. So to get anything done, it looks like classic real politics. That's what he's saying. Nevertheless, continuing on, the picture is problematic here, too. Realism emphasizes states' relative power, and that matters. But so do leaders, publics, non-state actors, ideas, institutions, and everything else. War, meanwhile, can no longer be automatically considered the greatest danger countries face. The pandemic has caused more death and economic destruction than anything short of a nuclear war on or a world war, and climate change will be even more significant. Global issues such as these do not fit well into the realist paradigm. The problems go deeper still. International relations scholars, the political scientist Daniel Dresner has written, are certain about two facts. Power is the defining concept of the discipline, and there is no consensus about what that concept means. <laughs> Consider the question of how a declining United States should respond to a rising China. But first, explain just what is rising and falling about each. Military strength, economic potential, perceptions about the long-term trends of those, perceptions about the willingness to deploy them, the worth of each country's alliances, their national cohesiveness and institutional performance. Power obviously comes in multiple forms and depends on context. This means that the apparently straightforward question about the U.S.-Chinese power differential is actually quite complicated. 
For all the realists' ominous predictions about recurring conflict, finally, great power war has not occurred for generations. Nobody knows for sure what has driven this so-called long peace or how much longer it will endure. Suggestions include luck, nuclear weapons, historical memory, U.S. power, and policy, economic independence, changing value systems, and more. But whatever the cause, until this unprecedented stretch of great power peace is broken, it is a bit rich for pessimistic realists to claim that optimistic liberals are obviously naive. Interestingly, and this is, this is one of my favorite parts of the article, interestingly, the dissidents in international relations, sociologists, psychologists, constructivists, critical theorists, cultural theorists, Marxists, feminists, network theorists, and others outside the U.S. mainstream have weathered recent decades better. This is not because their own findings have accumulated. They haven't. But scholars drawn to those approaches made wiser bets than the rationalists, both realist and liberal, on what ultimately mattered in political life. They focused on hierarchy as well as anarchy, making them better at seeing domination when it was occurring. They were more attuned to social relationships, and they started from better assumptions about their basic unit of analysis. Sometimes that's key, what unit of analysis you start your assumptions at. And if it, and if it doesn't work, change your rules. Yeah. <laughs> so you fit reality to your model. You don't fit your model to reality. Or no, the other way around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, know, I know what you mean. Yeah, you're right. That's what people do. They try to do. They force uh, a round, a round peg in a square hole, or something like that. Mm -hmm. So we're almost done with this segment. We now know that humans are cognitively biased against reason. That's a that's a bold statement. Our brains are hardwired to make us emotional, volatile, and tribal. We act according <laughs> to personal webs of meaning that do not necessarily overlap with those of others. The dissidents in international relations took those factors as starting points, not afterthoughts. They looked at political actors from the inside as well as out, focused on identity, and appreciated culture and contingency. Their approaches were better suited for a world in which identity politics is central to everything, and small numbers of people can wreak vast amounts of damage, not to mention a world in which those people increasingly live through social media, the addicted customers of private companies with business models based on custom tailoring reality, inflaming emotional volatility, and stoking the group conflict. There we go. That was quite the segment, don't you think? Wow, yeah. I mean, a lot of these things, David, you and I have been talking about, like that last paragraph you said, we now know that humans are cognitively biased against reason. Well, that's kind of an incomplete sentence. Uh, then where are their biases? You know, uh, well, you, you and I have mentioned this quite often. Uh, their, their reasoning is not based on logic. It's based on emotion. Mm -hmm. uh, very much so. They'll, they'll be, and if you can enrage someone, then you can make them act against reason. Make them as a non-rational being, uh, as long as you can enrage them or you can uh, lead them by their emotion, uh, because people are very much so. So the cognitive bias is against reason because it's influenced by the emotional aspect and social aspect of a, of a human, because humans are very complex. And what's driving our actions uh, individually and as a group is not one thing. Uh, and it's not one thing for everybody. It's different things for different people. 
And what drives an individual may be different than what drives drives a group that individual is part of. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 complex. And so I think that that's a very good sentence. But it uh, we know that. But what are the reasons uh, that they're cognitively biased against reason? Yeah. Uh, what are they biased? Uh, well, how are they led? Well, they're led by many, many different things. It's a very complex world. And in a complex world, uh, the greatest being that's most complex is humans. Mm-hmm. So we have a complex <laughs> biological unit in a more complex world. And so it's very difficult to make to make uh, things happen. It's, it's not impossible, but it's difficult. It's interesting. I saw a CNN roundtable with Trump voters. And this is in uh, August, maybe July of last year. And Trump uh-huh. voters, and the majority of them were going to vote for Trump again, but the ones that were going to not vote for Trump again perfectly correspond. And this was like a 10-person roundtable on CNN. But the, I think there were three that said, well, I'm not going to vote for Trump again. Like, oh, why? And it's like, well, I think he's a great leader, blah, 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 blah. But then they asked, how many of you have personally been affected by you or someone in your family getting coronavirus? And three of three, it was a 100% correlation that were not <laughs> going to vote for Trump had been personally affected by corona. And so, like, it's not about do I agree with this policy? Do I not agree with this policy? It's like, emotionally, I wish I could vote for him, but it's obvious that he did a bad job on coronavirus and it affected me personally. So since there's a personal tie, had that not happened, he would 100% get their, the, these people's votes. Well, that goes back to the Bayesian, the Bayesian, what's that called? The Bayesian... Uh... Bayesian something. Bayesian policy. Let me find it back here. Uh, it was early on, wasn't it? It was. It was in the intro. It was not in this last section. No, it wasn't. Call it the Bayesian doctrine. Rather than being wedded to its priors or uh, theories or this is how we've always done it. The administration should constantly update them. Again, pragmatism. Being mm. pra- well, well, yeah, that's worked in the past, but things have changed. Yeah. And basically, that's all Bayesian does. It just keeps updating and updating and updating with, with current information. Like uh, Moneyball. Because, yeah, exactly, like Moneyball. Uh, not, not just correlations, but also predictions. Mm-hmm. Like here is the most likely prediction moving forward uh here's where it's been in the past so you can be very you, you can really uh, uh look at uh, the way things are and the way things are in the past uh that is not necessarily what's going to happen in the future uh and even even betting even we've mentioned we've been talking about sports betting uh it it's harder to uh to uh, predict upsets but the idea is bayesian says wait a minute you have these theories you have a foreign policy based on principles, but is the world the same? Mm-hmm. Uh, is the world changing on you? <laughs> and uh, yeah, it is. Because after war, they mentioned World War II. Well, after World War II, the world was very different. Okay, uh, the United States had had um, 
they were in a very different power position uh, in uh, in the 40s and 50s than they are today. And so whether that's good or bad, uh, again, the uh, Bayesian doctrine says, well, how do we move forward? You cannot move forward in 2020 and 2030 like you did in 1940, 1950. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you say, yeah, that's true. But then that's exactly the kind of principles that he's trying to bring out and say, well, that's a very big picture. But what about smaller type decisions moving forward? And what are the impacts and results of those decisions? In other words, how do we create uh, how to create peace in the world instead of having conflict? And so it's not as easy as it was in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, but the principles still apply. Because some things change and some things don't. Mm-hmm. Well, but I mean, peace isn't necessarily the goal either. If Russia, no. if Russia storms, if if Taiwan gets taken over by the Chinese military, and they send their naval vessels there, and then mm-hmm. the real army, and you know anyone that speaks out against it in Taiwan gets thrown into a Chinese prison, and it's like, yeah, I mean that's. A couple thousand people in Taiwan that have been silenced and thrown in prison, and then the others have been silenced by virtue of the example of the few that spoke out. But we want peace, not conflict. So we can have peace by not responding to China's aggression against Taiwan. I mean, that's right. So you're not really optimizing for peace. You're optimizing for justice, or who knows what you're optimizing for. No, what I meant by peace was that when you have an objective. Okay, those objectives will change. You're absolutely right. And it may be peace, it may not be peace, but your objectives will change. But whatever your objective is, the means of that objective will also change mm-hmm. because we have a very complex world and the world is changing. So it's, it's it, it, I, when I was listening to this, I was, I was thinking back, uh, I did research one time on, on uh, uh, water, uh, time series of, of waves in the Pacific. And it didn't matter what type of model you had, that model was not going to work in different parts of, of the Pacific because the Pacific was complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have all different kinds of things coming and going and up and down, this kind of thing. And so mathematically, uh, you can look at the real axis, but in order to model uh, uh, ocean waves accurately, as far as all the different criteria, uh, you can't be on the real axis. You have to go to the complex plane. So I see what I, so having that background in my head, that model in my head, when I hear what, what this is saying here, I'm thinking, yes, you can have one axis of policy and theories and reason and logic, but the other complex axis is going to be people. Mm-hmm. And humanity, and and uh, and uh, and emotion, and also uh, people who want power. And it's not necessarily going to be logical. And so you have a complex plane there that has to be recognized and modeled. And that there's there's why I think his that's the basis of it. Think his argument of being pragmatic. Yeah. And where like are you, you in that in that spectrum? Well, like you said, and he was talking about implied odds. You're not gonna you're gonna fold bad hands. You're not gonna win every pot. But like you uh-huh. said, it's hard to model make a model where you pick underdogs. 
But the thing is, it's not about picking the underdogs. The underdogs are not the favorite. So any model will pick the favorite because they're the favorite. But the thing is, it's about the money involved. So if, you, if a team has a 40% chance of winning, that means then they're the underdog. That means that the favorite has a 60% chance of winning. So if you bet $1 to win $1.50, that 40% underdog is priced correctly because 60 is 40 times 1.5. Well, if you were getting four to one, you bet $1 to win four on the 40% underdog, that's a good bet. So you bet $100. Well, the thing is, there's a 60% chance you're gonna lose $100. And I think that when it comes to making difficult decisions, when you're selling something, this goes back to what I was talking about with Hidden Brain, you're selling a pragmatic choice to someone. You say, well, this is a, a well-bought, gamble that we're taking to sort of enact this policy if it does show a return like let's take for example Solyndra and the Obama administration investing in a bunch of different renewable energies well some of them failed like Solyndra and it's like that was a big talking point Uh, he lost a quarter of a billion taxpayer dollars because this company folded this solar but it's like you kind of have to gamble on renewables so that they're set up, so there's a pathway for them to go forward. And when you gamble on renewables, you're not gambling. Like if you're gonna have a 100% success rate, that's not gambling. Uh, 100% success rate is not gambling at all, right? That's right, that's right. So I, I just sort of see, like if you frame it as a gamble, you're sort of getting your money in when the odds are good. But if you're getting your money in when the odds are good at a 10 at a 10% underdog, if if a team has a 10% chance to win, and that means the its opponent has a 90% chance to win, you 9 to 1 is even money. If you're getting it in at 20 to 1, that's a good bet. But you still have yeah. a 90% chance of losing your money. Um cons- but, but but the thing about that though, one point here that 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 I want to point out is that uh, the game of poker, every hand is, well, unless you have the same deck, every hand is independent. Mm-hmm. And the betting that you make and the way you play and the way you bet really is the same every hand. But in politics, in the real world, and in, in uh, foreign affairs, uh, when you bet on something or how you influence, uh, the money you put in something, I'll use that as an example, uh, changes the landscape for the next for the next hand. Mm-hmm. So your betting changes changes the landscape. That's the Bayesian part of it. That's the Bayesian part of it exactly. Um, also, and this is where I'm I'm wrong, is you could take a sports game analogy. An underdog, March Madness underdog, has a forty percent chance of winning. Their implied odds are one point five. That's the money you should be getting, 1.5 to 1, because the other team has a 60. Well, in in the real world, in in foreign affairs and global politics, there's not winning and losing. There's outcomes that are, this was would have been more favorable if we could have gotten this, but because we did this, we achieved this return. You know, it's not like a sports game where the buzzer rings and they say, oh, we won. It's it's much more complex. And defining victory sometimes, sometimes for political purposes, you'll lose and you'll hold a press conference and you'll have a big banner behind you that says mission accomplished and you'll tell everyone we won because that's what you have to do 
when you're in politics. It's so winning and losing is not as clear cut as it is in a sports game or a poker hand. And then you go to chess. You have gambit. Uh, you'll you'll have a gambit uh, on part of some of your pieces. So. So it, it it's not that easy. Mm-hmm. It's it's a complex situation. So I, I also when I think of of sports and poker and chess and everything, uh, they are very good at revealing parts of the elephant, the leg, the trunk, <laughs> the tail. Okay, but don't think the world is that way. Uh, it's good to learn the parts of the elephant, but you back up and make sure that you realize that that's just part of it. There's a bigger picture of reality that's much more complex and you don't even know uh, all the details of of what the real world and reality really is. And it's because it's going to change. Whatever the reality is today is going to change. Yeah, like uh, uh, like Eddie Murphy on Saturday Night Live talking about Bill Cosby. Yes. You know, yes. you say, this guy, he's the wholesome one. He's helping out in the community. He's the family man. Eddie Murphy, he's just this young guy swearing up a blue streak. And then, you know, 30 years later, Eddie Murphy hosts Saturday Night Live. It's like, who thought that I'd be a stay-at-home dad of 10 and Bill Cosby would be in federal prison? You know? Yep. So you can take a look at someone and say, oh, he's winning, he's losing. But really, in real life, it's more complicated. Much more complicated. So uh, be flexible. Uh, take a, I, I kind of, uh, well, you got to be careful. In this article, he's proposing a pragmatic approach to foreign policy, mm-hmm. foreign affairs. Uh, and that's probably true. But you can back up it even saying that, well, wait a minute. The pragmatism also has some problems with it, too, because because you have to have a balance uh, between. Uh, well, you have to be a realist uh, or well, you got to be careful with with I hate labels. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing about pragmatism, too, is even if it's the best way to say we need to try this just to see how it will work and then we can adjust our plan depending on the results. People don't like that. I mean, like he said, cognitively biased against reason. Our brains are hardwired to make us emotional, volatile, and tribal. If one guy is telling you, we need to make a few sacrifices and we may be able to mitigate the negative effects of the future. If we don't make these sacrifices, the negative effects of the future will definitely happen. And the other guy is telling you, we don't have to sacrifice anything. We can be as reckless and as wanton as we want. And those problems of the future, he's just making those up. Well, which guy are you going to follow? The guy that says we could sort of make a sacrifice and maybe it'll help. Or you don't have to make a sacrifice. Nothing bad will happen. Someone could just lie straight to your face. And so pragmatism is tough to sell on a political level. As opposed to just being certain and saying, you know what's the right thing to do? Exactly whatever you – telling people what they want to hear. What do you want to (laughs) hear? Oh, that's what you want to hear? Okay, that's what I'm going to tell you. Oh, you love me? What a coincidence. Um, should we continue? <laughs> and and if it doesn't work out, blame someone else. Yeah, it's China's fault. The, cup- <laughs> the cupboards were bare. Uh, should we continue with the drama at the Capitol? Sounds good. Back to the article. Here we go. The drama at the Capitol. Studying these strange particles is different. It's hard to count the irrational numbers. 
Humans' multiple cognitive deficiencies, for example, make them susceptible to lies. That's what we were just talking about. Which play a major but understudied role in politics. Ordinary lying, knowingly telling untruths, is common. Big lying, peddling full-fledged alternative reality akin to the Marvel Universe, is not. I wonder who he's talking about. (laughs) Big lies are the territory of prophets and demagogues. People who hear divine voices themselves or play a divinity for others. They are self-contained intellectual paradigms immune from scientific falsification. As the scholar Nina Khrushcheva notes, the big lie covers everything and redefines reality. There are no holes in it. You either accept the whole thing or everything collapses. The bigger the lie, the further it is from reality. The more psychic potential energy builds up in between. And when the collapse comes, the energy gets released in a sudden burst. It was that kind of cathartic explosion that blew over the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Was the riot a political protest that got out of hand? An attempted putsch? A heroic defense of the Republic against satanic pedophiles? It was all of these and more, because the event was streaming on several platforms simultaneously, not just the conventional TV networks, but also the inner mental channels of the deluded rioters. This was history as tragedy and farce combined. The casualties included a woman who was reportedly trampled to death while carrying a flag saying, Don't tread on me. Quite ironic. The most persuasive reading of the day is as immersive theater. And not just because the marchers came in costume. It played like a mass live production of Euripides' Bacche, a tale of mysterious cult leader who wreaks vengeance on a city that disrespects him by whipping its citizens into a frenzied nihilistic rampage. Some men just want to watch the world burn, and some crowds just like the way it hurts. The riot's practical implications are deeply disturbing, but its theoretical implications are more so. For example, one leading proponent of the big lie in question is Peter Navarro. He was a crucial architect of the Trump's administration's trade policy. It will be interesting to see how mainstream scholarship on international political economy incorporates conspiracy theorizing into the heart of its analysis. Big lies are the territory of prophets and demagogues. People who hear divine voices themselves or play a divinity for others. I think that's a caption from a, I don't know. Once they see so the, he said that was said before. Oh yeah, I know. I th- they said I, that before. So I think that the typesetting got messed up or something. Once. They seized the capital, meanwhile. These terrorists took selfies rather than hostages. Like most of their predecessors in the 1970s, they wanted a lot of people watching, not a lot of people dead. But what if among them had been an even prouder boy, one like Timothy McVeigh, the 1995 Oklahoma City bomber? Then the entire U.S. Congress could easily have been wiped out, along with the vice president. It will be interesting to see how the episode affects risk assessments of all kinds. Clearly, it isn't so hard to decapitate the United States. Just as clearly, it hasn't happened recently, not because anybody prevented it, but because almost nobody was trying. Most disturbing is what the incident revealed about Trump. As Bob Corker, a former Republican senator from Tennessee, put The one plus that comes out of this is people have been able to see firsthand what all of us has known, just who he really is. With that in mind, imagine a scenario in which a few hundred thousand votes went the other way last November, letting Trump win the presidency, and the Republicans keep the Senate fair and square. In that branch of the multiverse, January 6th in Washington plays out rather differently. The same crowd comes in, but it is much larger. They don't want to hang Mike Pence. They want to hug him. 
They don't want to storm the Capitol. They stand outside cheering as he certifies the president's re-election. Trump is happy too, and why not? He gets to be the supreme leader of the world's most powerful military in unquestioned control of his party and all three branches of government. With an official propaganda network and a cult of personality that has millions of members who will literally believe him over their own eyes for four more years. It didn't happen. But it could have, easily, with all the consequences one might spin out for everything from foreign policy to trade to American ideals and institutions to the future course of international politics, democracy didn't prevail, it lucked out. One does not come away from the thought experiment struck by some larger pattern of history, optimistic or pessimistic, one comes away struck by its radical contingency. Now that is some writing, Mikey. That's very interesting. That's why yes. this guy got to be editor-in-chief, I tell you. Democracy didn't prevail. It lucked out. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good line. That's a really good line. Yeah, that's a good paragraph. One does not come away with a thought experiment struck by some larger pattern of history, optimistic or pessimistic. One comes away struck by tyrannical contingency. It could have gone there, but for the grace of God, go we, right? That's right. That's that's reality. That's really is reality. And so it's kind of like, it reminds me of uh, our founding fathers say, uh, let's do, it was an experiment. It was an experiment of we the people. It was an experiment. Mm -hmm. And we probably lucked out over, over the years because, because uh, there wasn't anyone strong enough to take us down. But uh, maybe power, I don't know. Uh, so you you look for easy answers, but they just don't exist. They uh, well, just don't exist. I've seen in other foreign affairs articles just a testament to the strength of the U.S., the resiliency of the U.S., the institutions themselves, is that it could weather this last storm. I think more look, countries that had less resilient institutions... Uh, that had less sophisticated means of politics, they wouldn't have weathered the storm over the last four years. So well, the question, the question is, if this storm that we saw on January sixth, instead of January sixth, twenty twenty one, what if that had happened on January sixth, eighteen oh one or eighteen oh whatever, eighteen oh four? What if it was right after our country just got started? Would would democracy democracy have prevailed? Well, he's also said take our country down, and I think that it's not binary. It's like winning or losing a baseball game. The events of January sixth took our country down. I think our prestige in the world, the image of our democracy, the power of our example, the strength of our institutions internationally. The strength of our word, when we say, I would suggest you do this, people can easily say, I would suggest you throw an election and not have your capital stormed by violent rioters that smear poop everywhere. Why don't you get your own house in order before you uh, you tell us what to do? You know, I think that a lot of our superiority has been undermined by the events of January 6th. And yeah, a bomb didn't explode. There wasn't a Tim McVeigh in the crowd. But that doesn't mean that we weren't knocked down several pegs by the events that unfolded. It's very true. Yeah. Though there were bombs there. Mm -hmm. they, just, they just didn't go off. So, yeah. I mean, I think that point. you like to, it's, it's easy to think of things as binary. Like, oh, are they going to take our country down? It's like, no, they took our country down. It's just, you don't, 
there's not a level where it's like, oh, it's the United States of Trump now. That would have been like, yikes. But I think that there is a loss of prestige on the international uh, and among Americans. I mean, I was shocked on January 6th that people were carrying Confederate flags inside the Capitol. And I'm an American. It's not like, oh, how do the Canadians feel about this? As an American, I was shocked and dismayed. Mm -hmm. So, should we continue on? Because I believe that uh. he's, he's laid out the issues, and January 6th is a big one. But now he's going to discuss strategies for mitigating ideological, what's the word when you're set in your ways? I can't think of it. Calcification? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Uh, demagoguery. Uh, the, um, uh, he, he started this section with lying, ordinary lying, and then big lying. Mm -hmm. And then, then he talked about divine voices themselves playing a divinity for others. Uh, I just want to mention that a lot of the people do not follow, they, they follow Trump as as a demagogue. Mm -hmm. Like, he lied, they didn't care. that He was their God. Mm -hmm. And so that's not only true for that we saw, but a lot of people seek out a God of some kind. And and so what happens is uh, people will rush in and actually use God, uh, our religion, as a device uh, to control the people uh, so that they can do their lies or do whatever they want. Uh, and if you look at the history of religion, uh, it is not a pleasant history. And uh, they have uh, controlled people because of the divinity aspect of truth. Uh, our, what we say is truth because we say it, not because there's logic mm -hmm. <laughs> in it. And I think that that, that type of, uh, uh, I guess, um, weakness or vulnerability uh, in any type of nation, any group of people, uh, must be considered and also must be um, uh, protected, or not protected, but... Uh, dealt with very carefully uh, as you move forward with not only foreign policy and foreign affairs, but also domestic affairs, because people are prone to believe and they want to believe in some kind of divinity. And that will be to your political leaders. And when you do, that's very, very dangerous, which we saw on January 6th. And I bet January 6th will happen. That will happen again and again and again. The question is, how do we respond to it mm -hmm. before and after? Okay. I was kind of want to say that with a lying part, because the lying is, it, you say lying, oh, that's terrible. Well, I remember, David, from the very beginning, uh, it didn't bother me too much what it, it did. Uh, I was concerned more about people believing in the lies mm -hmm. than the lies being touted. Why would people believe in that? There's danger in believing these lies, much danger than people trying to than people lying. And so, so that needs to be addressed within not just our country but every country. Anyway, in any type of political uh, uh, 
political group. Okay, I, well, you you had already set the stage for moving on. Uh -huh. <laughs> Foreign policy as orienteering uh, through uh, this, uh, uh, actually orienteering with a, with a changing landscape. It's uh -huh. kind of like mo a, a moving target. It's like rock climbing. Uh, you don't, where where the rocks are falling. <laughs> well, but like, you know, you take one step and then the entire cliff face changes and you have to sort of adjust to what's what's available next. Like Harry Potter and all the stairs start changing. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> we're already at an hour, so we got to move on just to finish the article. Okay. Um, so are you ready? Foreign policy is orienteering. I'm, I'm ready. Some call for abandoning the search for a larger theoretical framework for foreign policy altogether. Grand strategy is dead, claimed Dresner and two other political scientists, Ronald Krebs and Randall Schweller, in these pages last year. They argued, the world today is one of interaction and complexity, wherein the most direct path between two points is not, oops, wrong way, a straight line. A disordered, cluttered, and fluid realm is precisely one that does not recognize grand strategy's supposed virtue, a practical, durable, and cons consistent plan for the long term. To debate grand strategy, they wrote, it is to indulge in navel-gazing while the world burns. So it is time to operate without one. They want an administration's agenda to emerge piece by piece, bottom up from departments and the field, rather than spring from the head of some scribbler in Washington who thinks he knows where history is. Hey, David. Is. Yes. Hold it. Could you read that again? Because you were cutting out. Okay. To debate oh. grand strategy, they wrote, is to indulge in navel-gazing while the world burns, so it is time to operate without one. They want an administration's agenda to emerge piece by piece, bottom-up, from the departments and the field, rather than spring from the head of some scribbler in Washington who thinks he knows where history is going. In place of overarching theoretical frameworks, they propose flexibility and incremental experimentation. Dresner, Krebs, and Schweller are correct when they argue that simplistic roadmaps are not very helpful in dealing with today's complex international landscape. And both convinced optimists and convinced pessimists seem fated to produce crude and incomplete surveys. But that is not an argument for throwing the maps away. It is an argument for figuring out how to use two bad maps simultaneously. Foreign policy, after all, is not cartography. It's orienteering, racing madly through dangerous, unknown territory. And theorists aren't map makers, they're coaches. Their job is to help players race better. Maps provide crucial information, but the players have to use them out in the field, trying to move as fast as possible relative to others without getting hurt. Offered two bad maps, smart players wouldn't pick one or toss both. They'd take both along and put them to use. Policymakers should do the same, carrying both realist and liberal maps of the world with them as they go, filtering and combining them as possible. The first thing a player with two bad maps would learn was not to trust either completely. The learning would show itself over time primarily through avoidance of extreme failure. Interestingly, this is just what Dresner and his co-authors find in the history of American foreign policy, which is precisely why they suggest listening to the inductive, experiential wisdom of practical policymakers. The push and pull between the establishment and its critics, and between the executive branch and Congress, eventually reined in the worst excesses of American activism and prevented the over-embrace of restraint. The pattern is there, but miscoded. The United States has not succeeded because it has operated without theory. It has succeeded because it has relied on multiple theories. Foreign policy is not cartography, but orienteering, racing through madly, 
Okay, we've seen that before. Uh, sometimes it double. The process works like this. An optimistic administration believing the world can be improved invades a developing country, like Vietnam, Afghanistan, or Iraq, and tries to make it look like Nebraska. After many <laughs> years of futile, costly effort, the administration is kicked out and replaced with a pessimistic successor that withdraws. It can go the other way, too. A pessimistic administration, thinking cooperation is for suckers, tries to go it alone in the world, only to achieve little and be swapped out for optimistic successors, able to work better with others. The motor of U.S. diplomatic success has been the combination of multiple foreign policy traditions, multiple dogmatic administrations, and regular political turnover. American foreign policy has always involved flying blind, making mistakes, and slowly, painfully, learning what not to do. But the process has played out unconsciously across administrations and eras rather than within them. By recognizing and surfacing the pattern, by becoming aware of itself, the country could own its behavior and more consciously control and direct it. An excellent way to do this in practice emerges from the forecasting research of Philip Tetlock, an expert in political psychology. Tetlock began with a simple experiment. He asked supposed experts to make specific predictions about the future, political events, and then check to see how they did. The results showed that Yeats was right. The best lacked all conviction, while the worst were full of passionate intensity. <laughs> As the international security scholar Peter Skoblik and Tetlock wrote in these pages last year, those who were surest that they understood the forces driving the political system, the hedgehogs, in philosopher Isaiah Berlin's terminology, fared significantly worse than their humbler colleagues who did not shy from complexity, approaching problems with greater curiosity and open-mindedness, the foxes. More experiments followed, including tournaments with large numbers of experts and amateurs repeating and elaborating on the findings. Out of the whole, a picture emerged of what the most successful forecasters did. They kept an open mind through thought and thought flexibility, the essence of successful forecasting. Tetlock decided was combining multiple maps with good decision rules for choosing among them, which meant incorporating the two basic approaches to prediction, scenario planning, and probabilistic forecasting into a unified framework. As Skoblik and Tetlock put it, the answer lies in developing clusters of questions that give early, forecastable indications of which envisioned future is likely to emerge, thus allowing policymakers to place smarter bets sooner. Instead of evaluating the likelihood of a long-term scenario as a whole, Question clusters allow analysts to break down potential futures into a series of clear and foreseeable signposts that are observable in the short run. The Biden administration, in short, does not face a tragic choice of pessimism, optimism, or just winging it. Instead of embracing realism or liberalism, it can choose pragmatism, the true American ideology. The key is to draw on diverse theoretical traditions to develop plausible scenarios of many alternative futures, design and track multiple indicators to see which of those scenarios is becoming more likely, and follow the evidence honestly where it goes. Such an approach to foreign policy would not change the world, but it would allow the United States to see the world clearly and operate in it more effectively, which would be nice for a change. The end. The end. We did it. We got through the article. And wow, well, that... two, two things. Two things I was listening. Two things that, that went through my head here, David. Uh, the first is the uh, the Bayesian doctrine approach. Mm -hmm. uh, but what he's saying here is very interesting. You know, the Biden administration does not face tragic choice of pessimism, optimists are just winging it. 
instead. Uh, what I'm hearing him saying, in my in my background, in my perspective, from my my background, yeah, the Bayesian doctrine is see see what's happening, see what what patterns are happening, what 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 type of uh, uh, what's hap uh, looking at the present, okay, and and not being uh, uh, distracted uh, by some ideology that doesn't apply today. Uh, but not ignoring it either. Uh, so first is the Bayesian doctrine of being aware of your situation, the landscape today. And the second is your decision process. And deciding, you don't, you don't decide with just one, one view. You decide, decide with a multiple views. So your decision process, your decision analysis, would be looking at all different alternatives uh, with the data supporting your alternatives based on a Bayesian doctrine, on a, on a Bayesian approach. So you say, well, yeah, this is the way it was in the 40s and 50s. This is the way it was in the 80s and 90s. This is the way it was in the 2000s. But this is the way it is in 2020s and 2030s. But then what's our decision? And so you don't tie yourself to just one, one uh, channeled path of action uh, based on one doctrine, uh, you have a decision process that tries to support all doctrines. And hopefully the third thing is having a, a value system uh, that is sustainable and not short term, short term, but long term. Anyway, that, that's how I would uh, that's how I would frame this thing. So there's a multiple things, the Bayesian doctrine, the um, the uh, uh, decision of multiple alternatives any criteria, but also filtering it uh, uh, w through with a, uh, a value system that's sustainable long term. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I see what you're saying, and I think that you're right. What I would like to point out is pragmatism doesn't play well politically at the ballot box. Certitude does. That's why someone like Donald Trump could get elected. Uh, we're going to throw away Obamacare and we're going to place it with something. You're going to be so happy. Well, can I get some details? No, you can't because the devil's in the details. A, I don't have a plan. I just want to undo whatever Obama did. And then what are you going to replace it with? Well, I'm not going to tell you, but you're going to be so happy. Don't worry about it. Pragmatism is, okay, well, Obamacare passed six years ago. And we do see that there are some parts of it that are undesirable. Could we work to pass supplemental legislation that builds on the good parts of it, but reorients the bad part? That's pragmatism. People, they snore off. Uh, they fall asleep when you start talking about pragmatism. But I think to Gideon Rose's point, and I think we've seen this. I don't know if we discussed this one article from this issue, but he's the editor of Foreign Affairs. And honestly, they've discussed this recently. Foreign Affairs was not a big issue in the 2020 election. They do identity politics. They do economic uncertainty. They do, and foreign affairs, because of maybe there's no big you know, global conflict that's affecting people at home, but it's, it's not an issue that moves the needle. So because it's not being debated in the political square, I think it's a perfect place to take a pragmatic approach. Because if you do say, let's try this, and it doesn't work, that won't blow up in your face. But if you say, I think states should pass a 
transgender bathroom allowance bill. That's going to be on Fox News every evening for the next six years. They're still talking about Dr. Seuss on Fox News. And that's not even <laughs> anything that happened politically, you know? Yeah. So I do think that uh, pragmatism, especially because it's so important, but I do think that foreign affairs is a good place to try this specific brand of pragmatism. And what do you think about this? This is the Sklobik and Tetlock developing clusters of questions that give early forecastable indications of which envisioned future is likely to emerge, thus allowing policymakers to place bets sooner. Instead of evaluating the likelihood of a long-term scenario as a whole, so you're sort of breaking down future outcomes into very digestible bits. That seems reasonable on its face, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's 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 good. That's true. It should be done. Mm-hmm. But that shouldn't. That should be part of a larger type of uh, decision process and making decisions in foreign foreign affairs. That you can't let one one perspective drive everything, because uh, you, you can just go down a, a, a primrose path and to oblivion. Mm-hmm. So you got to be careful. You have to be careful. So I guess I guess it's it's a combination of of being specific while also being general and and uh, well, I I think that uh, this implication in foreign affairs. I think applies his 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 uh, argument on pragmatism uh, applies to a lot of different things. If you if you look up it generally, it applies to business. It applies to people and relationships and families and everything. You know, say uh, uh, it, it's it's a it's a good article. It's it's a kind of thing that you can't. When you talk about being prag- pragmatic, uh, it, it is uh, kind of like uh, motherhood and apple pie. <laughs> it's, uh, but then how do you actually implement it? And that's a, it's, a good, it's a good article because it's just saying, let's just be careful as when we move forward. Uh-huh. And, and be circumspect. Be circumspect when you move forward, when, when you make decisions. This is foreign affairs, but he's talking about politics. He is. And um, we just read for 20 minutes, and we discussed for about 55 minutes, this guy's article, Gideon Rose, editor-in-chief of foreign affairs, and his final article that he's written for the publication. And I want to say that you and I are relatively smart people. Gideon Rose seems like a smart person. But you know who said it best? Who? Yogi Berra. <laughs> Everything okay. we've talked about for the last hour and 15 minutes can be summed up in 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 words. And Yogi Berra oh. did it. Oh, Boom. you mean Yogi Berra, the great, the great philosopher of the 20th century? The great philosopher of the 20th century, Yogi Berra, said, In theory, there's no difference between theory and practice. In practice, there is. Go Yogi! I love uh, Yogi. He nailed. He hit the hammer on the head. <laughs> and that's the way to sum it up, David. Yep. <laughs> so I think we can leave it there, right? Do you have any final right. words or any final sentiments? Yeah. Cue the music. It's playing. 
Census Aquarius says, keep on talking, but listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying. Bye. Bye.